You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 20. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. My name is Mark Holthy. I'm your host, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Well, this is the 20th episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm actually quite surprised that I have reached 20 episodes. And you know, it's interesting because the reality is there is no end in sight. I have a phenomenal lineup of guests that have already been recorded that I will be releasing once a week here. And, uh, and it's just growing. There are so many awesome things to talk about, so much information to share. Our government is still constantly making changes and modifying things. And there's some phenomenal interest stories out there that have happened and that I found in the news. And I've been reaching out to lawyers who've been doing some exceptional work for the little guy. For those people, uh, you know, the, the individuals that typically receive the refusals from the government, and then what do they do? Well, they just pack up their bags and go home. But there's been a lot of stories of lawyers representing them, defending them, and helping them to actually stay here and live their dream in Canada. So I'm hoping to tackle some more of those guests and bring them on to talk about their stories and even bring on some foreign workers. So If there's any individuals who have accessed the immigration system on their own, um, not lawyers or representatives, but, but individuals who have had really challenging experiences navigating their way through to permanent residence in Canada or just trying to, to obtain status of any kind that have interesting stories that you'd like to share, come on, uh, come let me know. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to include it in the podcast, really expand the breadth of this podcast. But first and foremost, it's all about providing awesome content and providing individuals with information they cannot get anywhere else. So that leads us to today's episode. I am absolutely delighted to bring on with me a wonderful friend and colleague by the name of Marina Sadai. And Marina practices in British Columbia, and she has been just doing some phenomenal work in her neck of the woods. She's heavily involved with our Canadian Bar Association's national uh, executive. She's currently serving as the secretary. And I can tell you that if you need something done, Marina is someone that you can count on. And that's me as a colleague working with her in a volunteer capacity. I can only imagine how awesome she is servicing her clients Um, just her attention to detail, the fact that she truly cares about what she does. And that's a common theme that's coming on the podcast now. My, My guests that I'm bringing on genuinely care about the people they represent. And it's not all about money. It's about helping people to make their lives just a little bit better and uh, to help them fulfill their, their dreams of immigrating to Canada or, you know, even coming temporarily to visit family or, or to work. And so that's the purpose of this podcast. And I'm absolutely just so appreciative 
of all of the people that have uh, agreed to give a little bit of their time to come on the podcast, share insight, wonderful content, and make this podcast everything that it can be. So without further ado, I want to jump to my interview with my good friend and colleague, Marina Sadai. Well, welcome to Marina Sadai, who is joining me here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Welcome. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, Marina. I have wanted you on for quite some time here. And after juggling all of our schedules and we were finally able to find a time to uh, continue on something that we started, uh, I guess it's been a little over a month ago. Uh, Yeah, at the immigration conference in early April. That's right. Yeah, Marina and I had an opportunity to be to, uh, to to work um, to sit on a panel uh, related to express entry, and it was really almost more of a master class, I guess, to some extent. We delved into a number of issues that uh, practitioners and lawyers commonly are struggling with, and we were very fortunate to have uh, John Atchison come and join us, as well as um, um, boy Saul. Uh, who who was the other? Individual uh, with us? Yes, Philip Somojavari. Ah, now right, I know Philip. that I might not be doing justice to his surname, <laughs> pronoun- pronouncing it, but I think yeah. I'm close. Excellent. So we had a great panel, and um, you know, John was so transparent, and he was just, just really good. Uh, so good, in fact, that the questions that we had just generally from the audience um, and his fulsome answers took up a lot of our time, which then resulted in us not getting some of our. Uh, questions that were submitted by some of the other um, CBA members answered in that uh, in that presentation. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get Marina on and she and I can go through some of these issues. Now, they're a little bit more technical and um, some of them uh, relate to very specific aspects of the Express Entry Portal. And so in, in the coming days, if we don't have it right away, we're going to try and release... Um, just a wonderful little uh, handout here from Marina that that goes through and in some cases even provides screenshots of how to resolve some of these technical issues. So stay tuned for that. If it's not released right away, um, we'll, we'll try and get that to you. But at this stage, I want to start off by introducing uh, you, Marina. How's that sound? Perfect. Thank you. Okay. So um, Marina's practice is focused exclusively on immigration and citizenship, like most of our guests. And she's been at it for pretty much the same time that I have. Uh, Marina started in 2005 when she was called to the bar. And that is my year of call as well. And uh, her practice focuses on really the whole gambit, uh, small to large businesses, you know, looking to source foreign workers, um, individuals, couples, and and families. And so that, that, really broad background has, uh, has really, um, given, uh, Marina the, the ability to handle probably most immigration situations that, uh, that people come across. I know from, from my perspective, I, I'd say probably about 70% of my practice is, is more larger business related immigration. And so I'm not as strong when it comes to, to family and things like that, but it's really nice to have a broad background, isn't it, Marina? Oh, it's fabulous. You know, that's the thing about the work we do is getting to meet such a wide demographic of clients. It really makes for a rich practice and a great deal of fun. Wonderful. And you also, in, in, you know, in conjunction with your immigration practice, 
uh, you also provide a lot of pro bono and outreach. Um, I know that you, you're a frequent public speaker. You've taught immigration law and policy uh, at UBC's Immigration Practitioners Program for, I think you said 2010 to 2014, about four years you, you did that, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. And the persons attending that were, I mean, people who wanted to be hired by the CBSA, by CIC as it was at the time, other government departments, uh, potential consultants, lawyers, legal assistants. It was just, you know, everyone who wanted to play a role in immigration law um, was represented at that course. So it was, it was very interesting and we had a lot of different perspectives. I quite enjoyed it. Interesting. And, um, yeah, so, so really this is different than, for example, the immigration practitioner courses where, uh, it, you know, the, the, I should say the immigration consultant courses where you're teaching uh, individuals who want to be, uh, immigration representatives. This is actually individuals that want to be on the other side of the fence. Yeah. A little bit of both. Very cool. Very cool. Well, in addition to the teaching, you've also had a wide variety of roles within the Canadian Bar Association. And so you've served as the past chair with the CBA, um, the BC Immigration Section. You've served in that executive, the local section there in BC, uh, for a number of years, from 2007 all the way to 2015. And currently, you are a table officer on our National Immigration Executive, uh, currently acting as the secretary and that's a position that you took up earlier this past fall. It is. It's been, it's, it's fabulous to be on as a table officer. I'm learning a great deal uh, in how our membership and how the, the public as well uh, needs to communicate with government. And it's been wonderful dealing with the government uh, this year. With, there's just a new day uh, of transparency and uh, effective communications. Absolutely. And you, as secretary, then will see your opportunity to sit as our national chair uh, sometime around 2018. Or, uh, yeah, 2018. I think so. That's right. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I also put in the caveat that although you are actively involved on our national executive, that the opinions that you and I are going to be portraying here are not uh, not those necessarily of the of the Canadian Bar Association, but but uh, our own opinions. So, yep, that's right. Everything, uh, everything is my opinion that I say. So, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, every podcast I start out with the same question. How did you get into immigration? Well, I started out um, quite interested in public international law. And then as time progressed, I decided that I'd really prefer domestic law practice. So I pursued um, articles and went into corporate commercial articles, primarily some civil litigation. And I enjoyed the client's within that practice, but there was something missing. Hmm. And I found what was missing in immigration law. You know, again, that wide variety of ages, ethnicities, um, life experience, social economic backgrounds. It's just, it doesn't, there's no richer tapestry of a practice within a practice than an immigration. And that really is highly attractive to me. Something different every day. Wonderful. And, you know, I think a lot of us get into immigration for, you know, for similar reasons, you know, the, the human interaction, the ability to make a difference in people's lives. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the main reasons that we get into this gig, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. 
All right, so let's jump into, without further ado, uh, some of these pressing issues and questions that uh, were left unanswered at our National CBA uh, conference and uh, that we're hoping we can shed some light on uh, this time. So just as a lead-in, I just want to emphasize that the focus of this podcast on express entry is almost kind of like a master class and it's it's focused primarily around our lovely uh, express entry portal the representative portal but some of these issues also play out um, through individuals who are accessing the express entry system through the online portal uh, for all intents and purposes we see the same thing it's just the initial interface is just a little bit different for us as representatives but there are some issues that arise and it's because of those uh, you know, those issues that we have been trying to shed some light and pull the curtain back a little bit so that uh, people will know how to deal with them when they see them happen. Um, I think you'll remember, uh, Raina, when this first started back in the beginning of 2015, this portal was a nightmare and uh, it was, yes. it was terrible. You know, the, 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 for, for both representatives and individuals, it was full of glitches and for all intents and purposes, it probably never should have been released as quickly as it was, but in keeping with, uh, you know, our, our, gov- our government's mandate, they have a tendency to release things really quickly, uh, and then allow us as the representatives and, individ- and individuals to basically beta test it <laughs> at our own peril. It's true. There were lots of bugs. It crashed often, sometimes it's on offline for hours or days. Uh, but I have to say the improvements, I'm, I'm fairly pleased with overall, and I'm quite pleased with the department's interest to fix the bugs that remain. You're exactly right. I actually don't mind it too much right now. You know, it's very, um, it's, it's very user-friendly when you know how to answer the questions uh it's it's yeah a lot of those bugs that we experienced before have kind of washed away you know where information would magically disappear and you know there would be it just it would crash and like you said it would freeze and be offline and it's been really good and so there's not a lot we can complain anymore the bugs have definitely been worked out but in uh in keeping with um you know some of the issues that we want to cover um, why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, sure. One of the questions that I think a lot of people have is with respect to statistics and what is act- actually going on within the express entry system. One of the questions I get more often than not is, you know, do you think the CRS points are going to drop? Do you think that, you know, I have 445 points, um, you know, do you think in the next draw that maybe it will drop down to that level because my work permit's expiring? I don't know what to do. And I think you get those, those types of questions all the time as well, Marina, but maybe you can shed some light on just some of the more recent statistics uh, that people would be interested in regarding express entry. Well, absolutely. Now, so we have been on a bit of a roller coaster with who's getting an ITA and when an invitation to apply and when, uh, but, uh, here are some of the stats that will help explain where we've been and where we're going. Uh, so the target for immigrants in 2016 is at roughly 300,000. Um, and of that, there's about 60,000 that will come from the economic classes that are housed within the express entry system. But before 
there's a whole lot of paper applications that pre-existed the express entry system, and they're still processing those. So that has um, pushed down the number of invitations that have gone out because they have quite a backlog of documents that they're, or applications rather, that they're going through and they're sending out approvals for many of those. Uh, so by the end of this year, or perhaps later in this year, um, we should start seeing the more invitations going out and the, uh, the, the express entry points required going down. But by how much, that's a very good question. Uh, because we have from about 350 points up to 450 points in the system, that houses about 60% of the candidates. So they don't have to go down into that pool, scoop many more applicants out um, from below the, the 450 mark to get a lot more applicants. For example, just between 440 and 450 points, there's roughly 2,500 candidates waiting. So I think we will be seeing the points going down and the number of persons invited going up later in the year as they get through the old paper applications and they no longer are relying on those to hit their targets and they're going into the 2017 targets. Hmm. That is interesting. And uh, when you think about those numbers and how many individuals will be pulled in or at least given an invitation to apply with just a slight drop, you know, I remember last year they indicated that the sweet spot was somewhere between 350 and 450. Well, boy, at that rate, it's going to be very interesting to see how low it could get one day. But with these numbers and this uptake of individuals, you know, it, you know, it, who knows if it will ever drop to 400 points? Yeah, no, that's a good question. 400 is quite low. I wouldn't be making any promises about that. Um, but, um, you know, the 430 and up range, I have some hope. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'm with you there for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for shedding a little bit of uh, light on the statistics behind the program. Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. So the first question uh, that was asked related to this whole concept of linking and delinking um, individual applications uh, with representatives. And so sometimes an individual is not always happy with their representative um, or in, in contrast, uh, a representative is maybe needs for whatever reason to, uh, to no longer act for an individual. So is there a process? Like, how do you go about doing that? Is it even possible? Yes, it is possible. So one has to go into, if it's an individual, they're my CIC or the representative, the representative's portal, and there will be an option to link an application. And when one goes into clicks on that button and fills out there's there's a variety of combinations of information that can be used with name and passport information and um, other particulars that would have been on the application or the profile so you get the right combination and then you pull it into your portal whether that's my CIC or the representative's portal and that action pulls it out of where it was previously housed with the other representative 
Uh, so if someone runs into a problem with this process, as I did on one in one case, there is another button within the portal that uh, you click on for to report a technical problem. And what they really need with this is for not only the individual to describe why they can't, what they've been doing, and that they still can't link their application into their own portal, um, they also need the screenshots of everything you've tried so far and the result of it. So even if it seems like it's obvious, um, still take the screenshot and provide it to them because they don't get to see the same interface that we have. So sometimes there's a deal, uh, a detail on the interface that might be helpful to them. Uh, so. Submit it that way, and the promise is that someone will communicate and uh, help resolve the problem. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, amazing to think that with a system so sophisticated, that the individuals on the backside can't see what we see on on the front end. Um, but uh, yeah, those are really good tips. Uh, really good. All right, let's take a, a a jump now to our second question and. As you have experienced and I, when we are completing express entry uh, profiles for individuals that have Canadian citizen dependents or permanent resident dependents, we're required, you know, by and large to insert their information as well. Well, sometimes, depending on how people answer the, the questions, it will actually force a client to pay fees for these individuals for immigration. So uh, how do we address that type of a situation? Yes, you're exactly right that it's about primarily about answering one question correctly. So when someone has a Canadian citizen or permanent resident dependent, they come up against a question, will this person accompany you to Canada? And they often don't know how to answer this. Like, well, yes, they're here already with me or they'll go to Canada with me, but they're not immigrating with me. If the dependent is a Canadian, then the correct answer to that is no. And that should uh, set up the system so that there is no prompting for documents or for fees to be paid. Now, in the instance that one is prompted for documents, the only document you should be uploading for Canadian citizen or permanent resident is evidence of that status. They're, they're PR card, their permanent resident card, or their Canadian passport. Uh, when it comes to the information fields, the, the, the one does not need to provide any information about the Canadian citizen in terms of their work history and address history, etc. One just can put in, um, you know, not applicable or in the particular instance of the personal history sec se section, you select unemployed and then you claim the total 10-year period for unemployed. Now, they, they understand that that person may well have been employed, but it's just for the purpose of allowing the individual to go on from one field to the next and skip over the information that they're not obligated to provide. Yeah, and that's great insight because this is a computer-generated uh, online, you know, um, uh, algorithm to some extent. And so how you answer some questions triggers the questions that you get next. And, uh, it's in many cases, you know, how you answer those questions will determine whether or not your life is going to be a whole lot easier <laughs> than, than it would otherwise. And, uh, when people are trying to be, um, extremely transparent, they're trying to be comprehensive in their answers. They're trying not to miss anything because they know they're going to be punished. 
sometimes their their zeal for 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 being as as um, complete and open and and providing as much information as possible results in a lot of problems and so understanding that you know sometimes that's just how the the you know express entry portal works and this is how you can work around it it can save individuals just a ton of time effort pain and suffering literally as they're trying to complete this you know their applications yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, the department doesn't want this information. It's not entitled to this information. Uh, and so this asking for, you know, specifically to, to label un, unemployed, for example, while some may worry, what well, not that a misrepresentation? No, it's not a misrepresentation. It's a, an agreed upon placeholder. Perfect. Okay, let's move to question three. Now, sometimes when people are completing uh, their express entry portal, they'll, they will submit it. And then, you know, there will come a time where they can uh, add to it. You know, they can, maybe they've completed a schooling that they hadn't had before. Um, you know, there, there's a whole host of things that potentially they increase their language scores and want to update it. But the CRS, uh, the system, doesn't necessarily recalculate as quickly as people would like it to to be um and sometimes there's issues with that now i think the 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 government officers shed a little bit of light for us can you can you help us out with that Sure. So um, I think that the department has been quite surprised that it wasn't an immediate update for everyone, but definitely it hasn't been. Um, So it should be immediate. Uh, If someone is waiting more than 48 hours for it to update and it hasn't done so, then they should, um, again, screen captures and submit their concern using for clients, uh, for the public, using the case-specific inquiry online. Um, Now, one of the things that causes this is actually a user error. Sometimes people will go in and they will change the information um, that they need to change, but then they don't know that they have to go through all the following steps right through to the end where they uh, sign off again and they get uh, uh, a window coming up saying, you know, thank you for submitting your profile or words to that effect. Uh, So take it all the way through to the end so the system recognizes that there's been a change. Gotcha. And I can totally see an individual who thinks, hey, all I need to do is just go in and just make a few changes. Now I have, you know, now I've rewritten my cell PIP test and, and now I have a nine, which opens up all of these wonderful worlds of, of, of CRS points. And they're so excited. They, they make that change, you know, they complete it. Um, uh, and, and it's giving you a nice little green checkbox. Uh, but they don't realize that they need to follow through and actually finalize everything. So that makes a lot of sense. Great, great insight. Great. All right. Fourth question, marital status. Okay. Uh, so this, this, the, we've got a couple of questions here on this concept of legally separated and especially in the context of, um, of former spouses. Yeah. So, I mean, it's when going in, first of all, it's, you know, what does one enter in the express entry system? Uh, So it asks, how does this relationship end? And then um, for a separated spouse, they'll see that the options are annulment, divorce, death, end of partnership. So separated spouses don't know what to do with this, understandably. Uh, So the IRCC is looking into it, but in the meantime, they're suggesting that people select the end of partnership response. Now, 
another issue with legally separated is what does that mean? And the legally separated is fact-driven. It doesn't need a court document to prove it. Some officers are... uh, are uncertain of this, and they will come back and ask for a court document proving that the separated individual is legally separated. Well, there's no difference between separated in fact and legally separated. As soon as a couple is not uh, intending to be married, they're living in different homes, they're legally separated. So I think officers are going to get further training on this for the very few who didn't understand it. And if someone receives a document or rather a request saying, you know, prove it with court documents, explain what I've just said, upload a sheet of paper saying, in fact, here we we are factually separated, uh, maybe a statutory declaration, a, a statement, a sworn statement as to the particulars of the separation, and even some evidence uh, that the individuals are leading separate and apart uh, lives. And that's great insight. So if you think about it, often we have clients who have been separated for years from a spouse who doesn't even live in Canada. Well, obviously they're going to have a whole lot easier chance or easier, easier time demonstrating that they are legally separated. Um, and then in, you know, in contrast individuals that are here and maybe, you know, they're married and, and, uh, you know, have not been separated for very long there's a lot of confusion, but your, your, your tips and your suggestions there make a lot of sense in terms of statutory declarations, but people who don't understand this and you receive these letters back from the government, when the government's asking for things that really they, they have no business asking for, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not a, a proper request in law. Um, I think they should call you Marina. <laughs> well, you know, if anyone were to be rejected or refused only because they didn't provide a court document, even though they provided plenty of factual evidence um, that they were separated, I would be pretty quickly examining the case to determine whether an application for judicial review would be in order. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, I just, did a um, a podcast that the listeners will remember with with um, Rekha McNutt, and we talked about that concept of judicial review, and this would most definitely be an appropriate circumstance to consider that uh, that remedy. All right, question number six. Now, this one is one that I'm sure caught many people off guard when we first started the express entry process for years and years and years. And even within the, the you know, the, the portal, we have um, uh, the, the profile stage. We've been accustomed to providing history and background information on a year and monthly basis. But lo and behold, the lovely express entry portal is now asking for us to remember everywhere we've traveled, everything that we've done um, on an exact day basis, as opposed to month to month. So what, what do we do with that? Oh, you're right. This question is torture for many people because people who are immigrating and many of us lead very international lives. And so over a 10 year period, I can't imagine trying to recall 
right down to the exact day of the month of the year that I exited and re-entered every country. Uh, so it is a challenge, uh, but it looks like it's going to stay that way because they need that to determine if the individual reaches the threshold of having been in a country for six months or longer cumulatively which of course triggers the need for a, pol a police clearance certificate. So it might be that a person, if it, if it were just month and day, or rather month and year, it might be the person traveled from January to June of 2016. So that looks like six months, but by filling in the actual day, we might discover it was June 5th, rather January 15th to June 15th. And in fact, they don't even need to bother with a police clearance for that jurisdiction. So it's here to stay. All we can do is go and find the best evidence possible by getting exit entry records from every country that uh, will, will publish them. Hmm. So what you're saying is there may actually be a silver lining to the request for an exact day in our, in our travel history. Um, I could see if, if it was just month to month, like you've identified there, you might be requested to provide a police clearance that you really in law don't have to, or should not be, uh, required to provide. So, yeah, that's true. And, you know, in my practice, having said all of that, in my practice, I usually advise clients that, look, if you've been in a, anywhere for five months or longer, it might be prudent to ask for a police clearance certificate anyway, because officers are allowed some discretion. I don't know what to exactly what extent they would exercise their discretion, how frequently for police clearance certificates where the individual was not in a jurisdiction for six months, but it's better to be safe than sorry in many instances. You bet. And that leads nicely into our next question. Sometimes people are caught off guard when they're completing their electronic application for permanent residence. And lo and behold, there's a slot for a police clearance from a country they did not even think about. And so there is uh, approximately two months to provide it. But sometimes your time's running out. You have to submit your application and you just, you just don't have it. So what do people do? Yeah, you're right. It's, I mean, of course, it's better to be proactive before, the, I mean, the very first thing one should do is be getting all these documents that take a while. But, you know, sometimes pe people are surprised, as you say, and they realize they don't have what's required and they're not going to have it by the deadline. Uh, so they... Of course, they should get the request in for it immediately, keep evidence of that. And when they're uploading their electronic application for permanent residence, the EAPR, they need to upload a note saying, here's the evidence that I applied for it. Or in some instances, it might be a jurisdiction that won't accept a request for police clearance until IRCC requests it directly. Uh, so then a note to that effect should be uploaded. They, you know, IRC has not been very forgiving about late documents at all. They have been basically ruthless, rejecting um, applications for deficiencies, documentary deficiencies. But the one exception that they might make is if they see a situation like this, where the person really is trying to get their police clearance certificate and it's just not arriving, then they're quite likely to wait. Well, I sure hope that they start showing a little bit more compassion than they have to this point, because you're exactly right. I remember, I can't remember who, 
one of the government officers anyways indicated that they you know they acknowledged that their approach was ruthless um but they also said look we don't pay our officers to think <laughs> you know they they want to take it to the point where everything is so automated and uh uh you know just regimented that there isn't a lot of discretion built into it and uh the more they can do that the the more costs they're you know the cost savings they're going to be able to benefit from and and so it's not surprising that sometimes we get some really strange results as we're trying to navigate this complex system yeah and it has helped them certainly meet their commitment to process 80 percent in six months uh, so if they're refusing to process some of the applications uh, then because they're deficient then that allows them to move on and meet those targets um, an interesting stat on that point Roughly speaking, about 50% of applications were deficient in some regard, but 15% um, they rejected refusing to process them for incompleteness. So 15% is still fairly high, but they, they are, that indicates that they are giving people some chances to provide documents. But if it's a document that they think should have been provided up front, that chance is probably going to come in the form of only seven days. So it's uh, it's not much of a chance, but at least it is a chance. Yeah, it's it's something. And I think, too, in terms of those statistics, uh, I'll bet the, the rates of, of incompleteness in the early days of Express Entry were probably almost, <clears throat> excuse me, almost 50%. It's improved significantly since that time. I, I would tend to agree with you. I suspect the same. All right, so let's shift a little bit here to some wonderful news that we've recently received. Uh, those of us who have had to request FBI clearances from the U.S. have been subject to insane processing times. You know, timing that, that is taking months and months. However, we got some positive news, didn't we? Oh, this is welcome news. It was hinted at uh, during the conference, and indeed, it came true. Uh, the IRC officers were people of their word, and we are now able to submit FBI results um, obtained through channelers. So channelers are private um, businesses that have a contract of sorts with the FBI. Individuals can submit their fingerprints to these channelers and receive the results extremely quickly. There's a few methods and speeds with which to uh, receive the results, but it can be just a matter of days instead of something like three, four months from yeah, the FBI. Yeah. yeah, it's it's wonderful news. And I was I was telling everyone at our national conference that I'd actually been submitting Chandler FBI's for a little while, even though the government said not to do it. And, uh, you know, when you don't have it, you kind of submit what you have. And I didn't say, well, here's the Chandler and then the real one will be forthcoming. And uh, we were able to get a few through. And then I told John Atchison that on our panel and he was surprised. And then guess what happened? Very promptly <laughs> upon returning, I had a, a, a confirmation from uh, IRCC, IRC, which is a wonderful acronym for them, um, that my uh, Chandler FBI certificate was not acceptable and that I needed to obtain a real one. So we then dutifully sent our clients off to get new fingerprints and to request it again. And then we received confirmation uh, just after getting the originals back for a client that lo and behold, Chandler FBI certificates were all fine and dandy once again. Yes, we'll we'll leave that under the heading of uh, pure coincidence for you. <laughs> exactly. Yes, indeed. All right. Number nine, disappearing 
entries, especially when we're completing our personal information. Um, is that happening? Like what, what would cause that? Well, there's a couple of things. First, there is a start again button at the beginning, and some people have mistaken that for just going going back. Um, and no, it, it means start again, as in we're going to delete everything yeah, you entered it's here. Wipe it. <laughs> And it's gone. So the um, ERC is looking into addressing this. We'll see what happens in the future. Maybe something like do not do not press this button unless you want to erase everything underneath it. I don't know. Um, but the other issue, the other cause, may be because in. In certain um, windows where one is uh, entering the various histories, the personal history, etc., uh, some of them only have 30 entries allowed. So people sometimes have more entries than that, and they have to provide them on a separate attachment and addendum. Uh, if they fill up the 30 and then they're continuing to add other entries, the system won't remember it. It won't recognize it, record it. Uh, so those, in effect, disappear that way. Um, and that's part of the beauty of, well, beauty, it's a painful beauty, of PDFing and taking screenshots of absolutely everything we do in the in the portal, so that we can see um, these kind of issues arising and determine: Ah, I need a, an attachment, an addendum to ensure I can communicate the information I need to. Great tip. That's really really helpful because I can imagine how maddening it is for people who are trying to do this. Uh, trying to be as comprehensive and as, you know, as forthcoming in their answers, uh, cross over that 30 entry limit and then start to see all kinds of issues and can't figure out what's going on. So wonderful tip. All right. And on the, 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 the topic of tips, our last question, um, relates to these requests for additional documents or documents that we haven't provided initially uh, within the electronic application for permanent residence stage. We, we will get these requests, um, but there are certain things that, uh, certain ways, I should say, that uh, that ERC likes to receive things and certain ways that they don't like to receive these, you know, these subsequent requested uh, documents. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. They do not want to receive any express entry additional documents through the client-specific inquiry, except those that relate to changes of circumstance. And those are strictly defined as um, the family composition. So if someone gets married, divorced, there's a birth or adoption, change of address, change of occupation, change of representative. That's it. That's all they want to th see through the case-specific inquiry. Now, if one is updating um, one of those uh, changes of circumstance, uh, and another problem can arise. Quite often, people will go through the case-specific inquiry, and there's two steps to giving them a document. One is you select the document. And a lot of people don't notice that after it's selected, so you can see it on the screen, selected, they have to then upload it. Uh, so if they just press send and, it, and the document's only been selected, they're sending in their, their case-specific inquiry without the attachment. Um, another attachment issue is that sometimes people will try to upload something that's out of the parameters of what can be uploaded. So it can't be bigger than four megabytes, and there's specific file formats that are listed there. So 
JPEG, a doc, PDF, TIFF, but if there's another format, it's not going to go through. So when we get back, you know, two or three weeks later, uh, a message saying your CSE had no document attached, it's probably us, not them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as for submitting documents that are not changes of circumstance, we, re- we have to wait for the officer to open up a slot. Uh, to request a document, and then we go back into the system and upload what they've requested. Hmm. And that's really interesting because we really have no mechanism or no way of of knowing when this is going to happen necessarily. And so uh, I can sense, you know, the the challenges that some people would have because you, you're in this area that's almost like a black hole. There's no mech- mechanism for communicating and you just are crossing your, your fingers <laughs> as to, you know, when, it, when it's going to be opened up for you to provide what you need. And so one of the most important tips as well is to make sure you have, if you know you're going to need to submit something, then make sure you have it on hand and ready to, to upload in case they only give you you know, maybe just seven days or so to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the wisdom is here again, be proactive, not reactive with these documents. I'm always telling clients that before they even get their profile up, apply for all of those documents that are going to take some time to process and then go into the profile. It depends, of course, on their situation, but the wisdom would be to Get on them right away and don't assume that uh, they will come as quickly as needed later. Perfect. All right. Well, Marina, thank you so very, very much for shedding some light on some of these more technical aspects of express entry, which people just don't talk about. And, uh, you know, thousands of people suffer through these issues and you've taken um, some significant time out of your day to share with our listeners some of the answers to these more technical master questions, if we want to, if you want to describe them as such uh, through express entry, but we really, uh, and I really appreciate um, the time that you took to, to come on the podcast. Well, I thank you for having me again, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I hope it's of great use to the listeners. I'm sure it will be. Now, after you've had a, a chance to share your insight and, and uh, this, the tremendous level of knowledge that you have about express entry, if people want to reach out to you and, uh, and you know, ask some further questions, they want some assistance with their applications, uh, anything along those lines, what is the best way to reach you? Oh, well, they're very welcome to do so. They can reach me at my email address, which is, it's a long one, but it'll be fairly easy to remember. It's M as in Marina, Sedai, S-E-D-A-I, at immigrationcitizenshiplaw.com, or give us a call at 778 778- Three nine five seven eight one zero, and we also have an online inquiry form on our website, and that is immigrationcitizenshiplaw.com. Perfect. And Marina, I'll make sure to put links to all of that contact information within the show notes for this episode. Well, thanks once again for for joining me, and uh, hope to have you back again in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was awesome. Um, It was so great to hear Marina share her insight on the express entry process. 
you know, the technical aspects of working within the portal, at least for us counsel, can be downright maddening sometimes. And I know individuals that are submitting their own profiles through express entry and ultimately trying to upload their documents with the, uh, the electronic application for permanent residence stage. You've got your issues, right? It, it bounces you out. It times out. Um, you, you struggle sometimes understanding exactly what they want uploaded and what they don't. But trust me, for counsel who's had to deal with express entry, all of the technical glitches that have occurred over this past year, it has been enough to almost drive us out of the practice, to tell you the truth. And, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I can tell you there were days when I was wondering, why in the world am I doing this? The government has made it so painful and, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost not worth even doing it. I should switch and go back and, and pursue another area. But it's interesting because once you've, get it, once you've got it figured out, it's actually a pretty awesome little system. And it's, it's pretty clean. It's pretty uh, lean and mean. You know, you, you can get the information that you need, upload it. Everything is sequential. Um, yes, it's full of difficulties and trying to comprehend exactly what they want in it. But once you're able to identify the, you know, the ins and outs of this wonderful computer program, and I use wonderful somewhat facetiously, uh, you know, it's not that bad. So those of us who have been able to cling on and, and bear with the, the storm that really was our first year of, of accessing Express Entry, I think now we're starting to get a little bit of a comfort zone. And yes, we have to be a whole lot more careful. We have to make sure that we are really monitoring things closely. And, um, you know, by and large, I think most of us immigration lawyers, for sure, are actually doing the applications ourselves just because of how volatile it is. We may have support staff that traditionally have helped us collect information and those things in the past. But to a large extent, I think a lot of us have, have been so... <laughs> how would you describe it? Freaked out, I guess, by the system and how ruthless the, uh, you know, immigration, refugees and citizenship Canada has been with the processing of these applications. We just can't afford to make a mistake. And with the inability to look at documents once they're uploaded and boy, don't even get me started with all the long list of areas that can trip people up and result in applications getting uh, rejected. We, you know, by and large are are having to do the applications um, ourselves. Uh, where in, in past years, maybe we would, would have had our paralegals uh, work on preparing the documentation for us to review. Now it's often us that's doing the uploading. All right. Well, um, thank you so much once again for joining us on the Canadian Immigration Podcast, this 20th episode. And uh, as I think about it, 20, hmm, what do I do? Do I start season two or do I keep on going? I guess you'll find out in uh, in the next episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Uh, please go and leave a review on iTunes. Share this with anyone else that you feel may find it interesting and helpful. Um, the more we can share the love, the more it's going to grow, the more it is going to be uh, identified within iTunes when people are trying to find it. And also, if you have suggestions for future episodes, if you have any thoughts on guests that we could bring on, please share with me. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email to mholthe, M-H-O-L-T-H-E, at uh, Holthe Law, actually H-O-L-T-H-E, L-A-W.com. So that's pretty confusing. mholthe at holthelaw.com. I think you can figure that out. 
uh, or send me a message through Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, or even leave a comment on the Canadian Immigration Podcast website. There's lots of ways for you to find me, whatever's convenient for you. But I love your comments, love your thoughts, love the interaction, and hope to continue to produce awesome content that is helpful in helping you to navigate this complex world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. So long. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. your